following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 1, page number 836, using the Bible in front of us there. Mark 1, while you're turning... um, tell you another funny story. I started last week with a funny story. I'm going to start this week with a funny story as well. So uh, over the last couple years, I've noticed in some of the blogs that I follow this tendency to liken the act of preaching to playing baseball. You know, when you're playing baseball, you'd love to get up to, to the plate each week and, or each, each at-bat and hit a home run, right? But baseball is a game of failure, if you think about it. You are considered a success if you only fail 65 to 70% of the time. If you are batting 300, 350, you're, you're, you're an all-star. So uh, preaching is kind of like that. You'd love to get up every Sunday and, and hit a home run, but most of the time you're just happy if you don't strike out. You know, you're, just, you're happy for a single every now and then. About 60% of the time, if you fail, you're doing about right, we figure. Because you don't always get to see fruit from, from what you do. But last week, I, I saw fruit from my sermon in a way that I was not expecting. So I, I began my message last week. It wasn't beginning my message. I was just talking last week about going to the Knott's Island Peach Festival. Anybody remember that? So uh, I, I don't know why I started off that way. I just It was on my mind as I was walking up here. Weird things go through my mind on Sunday mornings. So I was... Uh, thinking about it on my way up, so I shared with you how we went to the Peach Festival last weekend, and while we were there, I was so excited about getting a, a peach pie, and we, where we ended up eating lunch was kind of, it was the only place we could find, it was kind of around behind where they were doing all the peach stuff, and I saw how they were just taking store-bought peach pies and unwrapping them and rewrapping them in plastic wrap and selling them. Not that they ever claimed they were homemade. I had just hoped, I guess, so I, and it was probably more on me, and I was so disappointed, right? So I told that story. And we went home, and we're eating lunch, and near the end of lunch, I get a phone call. And someone said, hey, I won't say who it is, so I don't embarrass the person. Someone's like, hey, are you going to be home this afternoon? I said, yeah. They go, well, I've got a surprise for you. And lo and behold, they showed up with a homemade (laughs) peach pie. Got ice cream. I went and got ice cream. Got ice cream and put with it. Oh, it was so good. I tell you that because, funny enough, yesterday we were at the Chesapeake Chocolate Festival. (laughs) And... I was all excited about a chocolate cream pie, which I didn't get. Just saying. Next weekend is the Oceanfront Apple Festival also, just in case you were planning ahead. You're in Mark 1. Let's look at these first 13 verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to recover from that. Verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with, the water, with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we come as we do every Sunday, because every Sunday it's needed to ask that your Spirit will come and meet us at this moment as we open your Word to do what we cannot do. I have no strength in myself. My words are, are weak and worthless. But your Word is of supreme value. It changes hearts. It changes lives. It, it reveals the lies that we hold so dearly. It shows us the the way that we're supposed to live, the way that you intended for us to live, the people that you have intended for us to be now in Jesus. And so the text, the scriptures, they are our focus. They are our life. They are everything to us. And without them, we, we really genuinely have nothing. We have no way of knowing you apart from this. And so we come now and we open your word and we just seek to understand, help us to understand Lord, we ask that your spirit will give insight and understanding. It will guide my words and guide all of our thoughts so that when we come to the end of the passage we're looking at today, we, we will clearly see what it is that you've had for us. So we come, we humble ourselves before you, and we ask for your help as we work through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We ended last Sunday on a cliffhanger. Uh, we had begun working through this prologue that Mark has given us to his gospel here in these first 13 verses where he is attempting to spoil his story for us. He is using this prologue to help us understand who Jesus is. Something, as I have noted now on numerous occasions, because I'm trying to drive it deep into your mind, deep into your heart, something that the characters in the story won't come to understand for some time. And the reason I'm trying to drive that deep into your heart, just in case you're curious, is because as we get into the story, we're all going to be tempted to go, what kind of idiots are these? Right? And they're not, they're not stupid. They just don't know the things you and I know up front. And so we need to cut them a little slack. What, what Mark is trying to help us understand here is that this man, Jesus, is no ordinary man. He is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-anointed, sin and death-defeating Son of God. That's the little phrase that I am using here for our prologue, our time in the prologue. And we're going to break down each of these portions or these descriptions of him over these few weeks. Last Sunday, we began looking at the very first part of that statement, Jesus as the promise fulfiller. Because Mark begins his story here with an Old Testament quotation that is um, unique, to say the least. In verse 2, he writes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And at first glance, this seems to be a pretty straightforward quote from the book of Isaiah, does it not? But but if you were here last Sunday, you know that in reality it is far, far more than that. First, it's not just from Isaiah, is it? It's actually a mixed quotation where Mark is taking a a passage from Malachi chapter 3 and a passage from Isaiah 40, and he's sprinkling in just a little bit of Exodus 23 for flavor, and he's putting it all together in such a way that he makes it one quotation out of all these passages. And he gives Isaiah the credit for that, I believe, because Isaiah is the largest portion 
of this uh, mixed quotation. But, but that's okay because in Mark's day, that kind of thing was totally acceptable. It, it, was, it was not uncommon to do things this way where different people who are talking about the same thing could be sort of grouped together. You can make a sort of a new quotation out of it. And that's exactly what he's doing. The passages that he's chosen here are similar and that they're all talking about the coming of the day of the Lord. This day where God is going to come to his people and he's going to reveal his glory for all mankind to see. And these passages, both Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, both of them speak to that coming day. And so Mark putting them together like he does here makes total sense to his readers and to him, even if it seems a bit odd to us. Second, let's talk about his purpose for choosing these passages. He's, he's, he's picking them because they both have to do with the, the coming day of the Lord. But the one that intrigues me the most is that Malachi 3 passage. If you weren't here last week, then you missed out on a, a little piece of trivia that will help you win Jeopardy next time you're on it. Uh, and that is that in the Jewish Bible, they don't call it a Bible, but I'm going to call it to keep it simple. In the Jewish Bible, there is no Malachi chapter 4. We have a Malachi 4 in our Bible. They have no Malachi 4 in theirs. In our Bible, Malachi 3 is 18 verses long, and then Malachi 4 is 6 verses long. But in, in their Bible, Malachi 3 is just 24 verses long. It's the same amount, same words, same everything. They just don't divide it into two chapters, and we do. And what's significant about that is that in the Jewish mind, you can't break up the thought between Malachi 3 and 4. The whole passage together has to do with the coming of the day of God. And as you get to the end of this passage there in their Malachi chapter 3 and our Malachi chapter 4, you learn that before this day comes, God is going to send a messenger who is who? Elijah. No, not Jesus. That's, that's Sunday school answers. Okay, this is, this is the morning worship service for goodness sake. It's Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 for us. Elijah's going to come. God is going to send him before the coming of the day of God to prepare his people. His task, Isaiah 40, will be to prepare God's way, to, to be that voice crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But, but Malachi simply ends by telling us that Elijah's going to come. And then, silence. The Old Testament ends in a cliffhanger. As you're left wondering, well, who's Elijah? How can he come back? He's dead. He was dead when Malachi wrote it. What, what, what do you mean he's going to return before the coming of the day of the Lord? And you have all of these questions. And, and what intrigues me, or, and what I argued last week, was that Mark's use of this Malachi passage here at the beginning of his story shows me that in his mind, the story he's about to tell is the completion of the cliffhanger. It's the fulfillment of what Malachi was talking about. And so he uses that passage, this mixed quotation, to show us that the promise that God made to himself concerning his coming to man is now beginning. Now, this is where we left off last time in our sermon in, in kind of a cliffhanger. After we had, had come to understand the significance of those Old Testament passages and why Mark has chosen them and why he's put them together like he, like he has it, it left us with two really big questions. One, who is Elijah? I mean, Malachi is clear that Elijah is going to come before the coming day of the Lord. So who is Elijah? If, if Mark sees his story as a fulfillment of that, we've got to answer that question. And how is this Elijah going to prepare the Lord's way? I mean, does the Lord really need his way prepared at all? Well, he's going to have it prepared by this messenger. And so how do we 
How do we understand that? And these questions are important. They're important because of the quotation that Mark opened up our story with. If you don't understand why we're asking these questions, then believe me, you will not understand why Mark begins his story talking about who. Not Jesus. Don't say it again. Who does he begin talking about at the beginning of his gospel? Look down. John. It's the gospel of Jesus. Why talk about John first? That doesn't make any sense. Ah, maybe it will. Let's, let's begin by asking the question, who is Elijah? And if you haven't already figured it out, here's the answer. John the Baptist is Elijah. That's why Mark opens his story with this guy, this crazy Judean preacher, instead of opening his story with Jesus. It, it sounds weird at first because, it, like I said, it's the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of John the Baptist, and yet this is who we meet first. We start with John. It's because John is a very important character in the fulfillment of God's plan to come to his people. You see this in every single gospel. They all open up with John. And, and I think sometimes we don't really appreciate why that is, but you have to connect it back to these Old Testament promises to really get the meaning. He is the messenger that God was going to send to prepare the way. And so for this reason, Mark opens up by answering the question of the cliffhanger from Malachi, who is Elijah? Everything Mark is going to show us is intended to show us that he is a fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. Think about a number of things. Think about the location where we meet John first. Where is he? He's in the wilderness. He appears, and it's funny to me that John, or Mark gives no information about John's birth. It's just that he appeared, like, poof, there he was, okay? John appeared, and he's in the wilderness, and he's doing certain things, just where Isaiah said he would be. He's not in the cities. He, he's not worried about being conveniently located for the people he's ministering to. He is out in the wilderness, just where you would expect to find this Elijah. Think about his activity. He's preaching. And I know you're thinking, well, isn't he baptizing? Isn't that his his main activity? Well, he is baptizing, but no, that's not his main activity. And you'll understand more in a few moments when we talk about what his baptism was all about. His main activity, his main focus here is preaching. And what he's preaching is he's, he's issuing a call for God's people to repent, for God's people to confess their sins, to turn back to God, to turn from their wickedness and sin, which is exactly what Elijah did. In fact, many people consider John, this is interesting, many people consider John to be the last Old Testament prophet. You say, but he's in the New Testament. Well, I know, but he's still considered by many to be the last of the great Old Testament prophets. He's out in the wilderness preaching to God's chosen people to repent and to come back to God just like they did in the Old Testament. Think about his clothing. Mark includes this seemingly unimportant detail about his appearance that he's wearing camel's hair, and the leather's belt, which coincidentally is the same outfit Ed wore to our Christmas party, Elder's Christmas party. It's really weird. Anyway, who cares what John wore? Like, isn't, considering all the things that he doesn't tell us about John, why include this detail about his, his clothing choices? Well, let's, let's look at a different passage and see if you can figure out why it matters. This is a passage we're going to read from the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 1. In the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 1, Ahaziah, the king of Samaria, was in his palace and he fell through a lattice and he's been terribly injured. And so he sends messengers to go to Baal-zebub, which is where you get Beelzebub from, Baal-zebub, who is the god of Ekron, to find out whether or not he's going to live. But on his way there, 
a man of God meets him and says, hey, turn around and go tell your king he's going to die. All right, we're going to pick up the story here in verse 5. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, ah, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Now, all he heard about him was his wardrobe description, right? Apparently, this is something that Elijah was known for. And the king doesn't need to hear anything else about this man that met his messengers along the way and gave them this message other than his wardrobe. And he knows it's Elijah. And so John's clothing, as you see it described here in Mark, is exactly like Elijah's clothing. And finally, think about his diet. He ate locust and wild honey. Again, an odd detail to include at the beginning of this story. And no, you can go look through the Old Testament. You will find no reference to Elijah eating locust and wild honey. I tried. Uh, there's nothing there. You say, well, well, then what's the significance of this? Well, the significance of it is that just like Elijah, his only source of provision is what God naturally gives, nothing else. I mean, here, he, here Elijah was by the brook Cherith, and all he had to eat was what the ravens brought him, and the water in the brook. And just like Elijah then, John, doesn't provide his own food either. He just lives off what God provides in the wilderness as well. And all of these things, these little details, little nuances, little bits of the story, Mark is attempting to show us that John is very much like Elijah. And apart from these things, like I said, Mark is uninterested in any other detail about who John is. He doesn't describe his birth like Luke does. He doesn't talk about his relationship to Jesus, their cousins of some sort or manner, like uh, John does, excuse me, Luke does. We don't get any extended conversations between him and the people around him like John goes into. Outside of these very few details, there's just nothing here in Mark about this very important character named John the Baptist. He only shows us what we need to see to make the connection to the quote that he opened up his story with. He wants us to see that John is Elijah. Now, later in the story, this is a we're going to look ahead. Later in the story, Jesus is going to confirm all of this for us. In Mark chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, after his transfiguration, we read this. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them, the disciples, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's taking their question about the coming of Elijah and he's saying, okay, people don't understand that, but they also don't understand the, the one who follows Elijah either. They're, they're all confused. But, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. What happened to, to John the Baptist? Head on a platter, that's where that comes from, right? His head given to, to Herod on a platter. Matthew records another conversation Jesus had along these lines. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 to 14, we read this. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has, been none, has risen none greater, I can't turn my page, 
than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. This is why Mark is beginning with him. Because he wants us to understand that as we open the story about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, that everything that God said would happen there at the end of the Old Testament is coming to pass in our midst. Now, let me make two interesting little side notes. At least they're interesting to me. Okay, You know how I am with weird little things. Two interesting little side notes that stood out to me, and then we'll move on to the other question. First, this issue of who is Elijah will confuse many of the people in Jesus' day. You think it's confusing to us? They were, they were really confused. They weren't sure if it was going to be Elijah himself, like come back from the dead, or if it was just going to be someone who was like Elijah. They, they really didn't know what to expect. And so there was confusion amongst them as to who's who in the story. Some of them are going to think that Jesus is Elijah. Two times in Mark, you're going to see this. One time in Mark chapter 6, you see that some of the people believe sincerely that Jesus is Elijah. Later in Mark 8, he's going to ask the disciples, who do, who do people say that I am? And what do they respond? Well, some think you're John the Baptist. Others think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Why do they keep talking about Elijah? Well, now you know. It's because they sincerely believe that Elijah was going to come back. And so they see Jesus and his ministry there amongst the people. And they're like, maybe, maybe this is Elijah. And the reason they're so confused about this is because they know that Elijah is going to precede the coming of God. And so when John the Baptist shows up, they're like, maybe this is Elijah. Well, who follows him? Jesus. And they look at Jesus and they go, he's not what we expected at all. Maybe he's Elijah and there's someone left to come after him. See, the real confusion is not with who Elijah is. The real confusion is with who the Messiah is. Their expectation of the Messiah is so great that when John comes along and he perceives this one who's coming and they see Jesus next, they're like, nah, it can't be that guy. He's nothing like we expected. Maybe he's Elijah. And they're all confused. That's why I think you see this keep coming up in the Gospels that they don't they don't know what to make of Jesus. He, he just doesn't meet the expectations. The second side note, I, side note I would make is that apparently John didn't understand this even about himself, which is really interesting to me. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist is having a conversation with some priests and Levites from Jerusalem, and they asked him, who are you? And he confesses to them, I am not the Christ. And, and again, put yourself in their, in their shoes. They're looking at this crazy Judean preacher. He's out in the wilderness. He's clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt. And he's preaching this, this message of repentance. God is coming. Are you the Christ? No, I am not the Christ. Okay. So they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? Why go to him next? Because they've got Malachi 3 in their mind. He says, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he says, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. As the prophet Isaiah has said. He, he, he looks at himself and he doesn't even elevate himself to the position of the fulfillment of this prophecy. But, 
but we know better than he. Whether, whether he gets it or not, whether he understands it or not, John is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would come. Jesus confirms that for us. That's who Elijah is. Now, second question. How does he prepare the way then? That, that's what he, he recognizes he's coming to make the path straight, to prepare the way. How does, how does he do it? Well, he does it, first of all, by calling God's people to repentance. Why do we call John, John the Baptist? Is it because he really likes potlucks, you know? Is it because he genuinely believed, thank you, is it because he genuinely believed that Carl the Presbyterian was going to hell for sprinkling babies? Carl the Presbyterian was a northern Judean preacher. That was a, you'll read about him somewhere else. Why, why do people call him John the Baptist? Well, the answer is really simple, right? It's because he's baptizing. And, and, and that stands out in the story, and it stands out to the people around him because of the way that they understood baptism. In that day, there's really only two reasons you would be baptized. One is if you're a Jew, excuse me, a Gentile convert to Judaism. If you're a proselyte. If you're, if you're a Gentile and you come to, to the priest and you say, look, I, I see that Yahweh is the true God. I want to be one of God's people. I want to become Jewish. How, what do I need to do? And they would give you a list of things to do. And at the end of that list, you have to baptize yourself, self-baptism. You baptize yourself. And it's in that moment that you are poof, finally now a proselyte. You are a Gentile convert to Judaism. And so one reason you'd be baptized is to become one of God's people. The second reason why you might be baptized is to take part in some form of ritual purification. Like if you needed to do something that required a certain level of purity, certain level of, of holiness, then you might be uh, baptized for that reason as well. So, so why then is John doing this? Well, let me make it very clear. It's not to forgive sins. See, that could be a little confusing based on, on how John is translating this here, or excuse me, how our English translation talks about this, when it says that he is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's not about forgiving sins. That's not why he's calling people to baptism. It's not about uh, Christian baptism either. No, he's doing this with both of those two things I just told you in mind. He is calling God's people to come become God's people. He's telling God's people, the Israelites, you are unclean. You, you are in your sins. You need to repent and come confessing your sins and be baptized. It doesn't sound so radical to our ears, but to their ears, this is crazy. Why would I, someone who's already one of God's chosen people, why would I need to come and become God's people? Why would I, who's already in God's good graces just by, by means of my parents and, and the nationality that I am, the race that I am, need to come and be purified further? That makes no sense. And yet this is exactly what John comes calling them to. All of you, all of you, God's chosen people, you need to confess you need to repent. His emphasis is on repentance because he sees all of God's people as being unclean. And so the main component of what John is doing is he's preaching this message of repentance, telling people you need to be reconciled to God, people who don't even necessarily understand that. 
Second thing he's doing to prepare the way is he is proclaiming the imminent arrival of the, of the coming one. I had here, I forgot that everyone, a lot of people responded. But here he's, he's referencing the imminent coming of, of the, the mightier one. His preaching isn't merely some ancient form of revivalism, in other words. He's not just simply saying, hey, everybody, you need to repent. You know, you're not quite as holy as you could be. You sinned a little more than you should. You need to, I'm holding revival services out in the wilderness. You need to come repent. How many of you grew up in churches that had revival every year? Okay. One week a year, it was on the church calendar, revival week. And this guy came in and he preached messages all week long. And during that week, you're supposed to come and you're supposed to confess your sins. You're supposed to get everything right with God. And you're supposed to be closer to God at the end. It was going to be revival, right? That's, that's why we scheduled it in advance. So it's revival and that's how that happens. John's not out there merely preaching for revival. He's not out there merely preaching repentance for repentance's sake. As if he's just concerned that Israel needs to maybe clean up its act a little bit. That's not the purpose at all. The reason he is out there preaching repentance is because he recognizes that something big is about to happen. There is one coming who is mightier than I. There is one coming who's so much greater than me. And he's considered to be an Old Testament prophet by the people. There He's coming. He's so much greater than me. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. And and that would be an act so menial. Not even a slave would be asked to do that. I'm not even worthy to to do this. I'm out here baptizing you with water. When he comes, he's not going to baptize you with water. Anybody can do water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you're listening to this, what does that tell you about this one who's coming? He's divine. He's God. God is coming to his people. Who is this guy going to be? What are, what are we looking for? By calling people to repentance and by proclaiming the coming of this mightier one, John is preparing the, the way for the arrival of God himself. He's on the doorstep. It's about to happen. God's promise to come to his people to reveal his glory to all mankind is about to be fulfilled. And John the Baptist and his ministry are a part of the fulfillment of that promise. That's why Mark begins with him. Now, Jesus' coming was not as the Jews had expected, right? I mean, he's going to show up on the scene. and He's going to get baptized in the next little segment of, of the text. And no one's going to really care. It's, it's going to be a nothing event. He's going to immediately leave from there and go out to the wilderness, and no one's going to see him for 40 days. When, when they saw him and they heard him speak after this, it didn't look anything like what they thought the Messiah would be. He came, he died, he, he then rises from the dead, and he promises to come again, but he's, but he's gone. None of this was expected from man's perspective. But every single bit of that was according to God's plan, right? We, we get that. And like John now, we find ourselves in a, in a similar situation. Because here we are left as the church, right? And, and what is our purpose as a church? Don't give me the quote from earlier, right? Our purpose is, like John, to prepare the way, is it not? We, we are left here very much like him preaching a message of repentance and reconciliation to the nations. That's why Paul, in a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, will say that we are 
ambassadors, messengers for God, on behalf of God, speaking to the people. God making his appeal through us, imploring them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. That's exactly what John was doing. We proclaim this message of repentance and reconciliation because we know that the mighty one is coming again. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know the details. John probably didn't fully know them either, but he knew it was soon. He knew it was coming, and so do we. The one who fulfilled some of God's promises through his first coming will come a second time and fulfill the rest. And everything that God had planned, everything that he had set in place for this world will be fully and finally brought to completion. But, but until that day, we all need to be voices crying, do we not? Crying in the office, crying in our neighborhoods, crying in the marketplace, crying in our families, saying, prepare the way. Make his path straight. You don't know when. You don't know how. But he's coming. Look, Mark has wanted us to see. Since the beginning, I've made this clear. Mark has wanted us to see that Jesus' coming is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises, right? It's the fulfillment of what God had told to his people that he was going to come to them. He's the fulfillment of God's promise to reveal his glory to all mankind. And, And, I mean, you see that here in these passages. And I'm telling you, we're going to see it again. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we recognize that 